Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. My guest today is a leader, entrepreneur, CEO, coach, and devoted family man. After the tragic loss of his 14-year-old son, he became an activist on a mission to end teen suicide. He's filmed a documentary and started an organization called Tell My Story to radically shift the conversation when it comes to mental health, imploring parents to have the same attitude toward their child's mental health as they have for their physical health. I'm pleased to welcome Jason Reed. Jason, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Thank you, Molly. It's an honor to be on your show today. Well, I am the one who's honored, and I know you are a very, very busy man, so I'm very grateful for you making time. Um, your work surrounding mental health is so needed, and I appreciate your commitment to help us, particularly in supporting our youths. Before we learn about your work, though, I'd like to first spend a bit of time giving listeners a look into your own early years, growing up, school, jobs, what made you, you. And I know there is a lot to learn from the entirety of your journey. Wow. So where, where do you want me to start, Molly? Well, where you grew up, first childhood uh, memory, anywhere you'd like. Well, I was born in Sudbury, Ontario, Canada, which is a small mining town up in Northern Ontario. Uh, my, my parents moved around a lot. My dad was in pharmaceutical sales and sales management. So we moved every three or four years as dad would get a new job. Um, just moving his way up the ladder, I guess. I was a very, uh, actually a very sickly child. I had a uh, really bad allergies. I was allergic to everything in the world, including chalk dust, which for those of you who are young enough or old enough to remember uh, chalk dust, that's what we, before whiteboards, that's what used to be in schools. And so I would just be, I was miserable in school all the time and I had really bad asthma. So I was uh, the kid who would go bouncing around from new school to new school and I was constantly sick and therefore um, didn't have a lot of really close friends, I guess, in school. I was bullied a lot, I guess, as well, just because I was, I was small and sick. Um, so I don't have a lot of great memories growing up. I have nice family memories, my brother and my sister and stuff and the cottages and things like that. But I did everything I could to avoid going to school, to be honest. I, I probably missed more school, um, <laughs> than most, like I'm talking like a third to a half of the school year every year. Um, that's just kind of how I was. So. Um, yeah, that was, I wish there was like, oh, this great, um, what a wonderful childhood you had. Well, yeah, not really. Um, well, let me just ask in this bullied a lot as a young, uh, a youngster, did your parents know? And I'm just, you know, I know that's kids are going through that today and back then much less awareness, I guess, but did you mention that to your parents? And I'm just wondering. Well, you, you know, it's interesting when you look back at, you know, I'm 55 years of age and, and. Um, my parents were from a different generation. So, you know, this was way before there were seatbelts in the cars. So we didn't, you know, if we were in the station wagon in the back of the window, um, this was, well, you know, parents smoked in cars while you're driving, which didn't really help me that much with my stuff. I love my parents, um, but they had, they had their issues. They drank a lot. They were alcoholics and um, it wasn't the best. They were loving in the best way they could be loving. 
And I appreciate that about both of them. They both since passed. Um, but yeah, it was, it was not the best stuff growing up. How did you, but yeah, I get it. And, you know, so folks, I remember the before seatbelts. I remember being in the station wagon with my two sisters. And if we were going down the hill, a big hill, we would say, daddy, wait, wait, wait. So we'd get our butts lined up to the back of the car so that as we were going, driving down a hill, we could slide forward in the back of the car. (laughs) Yes. I understand exactly what you're talking about. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's interesting, like, um, that we have such a huge mental health crisis today and we didn't have back then because our parents, wow. You know, when you talk to people my age, you're like, how did you, how did we all survive? Right? How did we, how do we make it through all that? When you consider how our parents just kind of let us go and do our own thing and, and, and didn't have the same attention to us that our say, parents do today. Yeah. I, I mean, we talk about this a lot. It was like, you, we ran out the door and then at noon you kind of hear this, it's time for lunch. And then you run back <laughs> in, right? And then oh, you yeah. scarf down the grilled cheese and then you'd run back out. And then four more hours later, you could get back in. And uh, yeah, I, I, uh, it's a whole different world. With the, with your parents, did you, did it cause a lot of bonding with you and your siblings? Um, You know, we are really close now. We weren't close growing up necessarily, uh, but we are, we, you know, we talk every week now and we, vacation together and my brother and I own a cottage together. But no, I don't think we were all that close. We were all trying to deal with our own stuff. And I, I left home when I had just turned 18. My sister would have been 12. My brother would have been 15. And I was kind of selfishly going, I'm just, I'm getting the hell out of here. And, and I did. I don't, I didn't really go back. Um, so talk to us at 18, talk to us what went through and how did you just, you just disengage? Do you mean you just left? I left. I went to college. Um, back then, it was easy to get into college, I, and so I mean, I was, you know, I had really terrible grades, but my aunt worked in the admissions office, and I'm sure that had some of the reason why I got in. Um, I continued my habit of not going to school, um, and spent two and a half years. Well, I guess I was, yeah, two and a half years almost, um, maybe three years actually, um, in school, and I had a, like a point two GPA. That's how little I went to class. I ran one of the bars on campus, which was a wonderful, fun art entrepreneurial experience. I loved every minute of that. I was running a student painting business in Can- in Peterborough, Ontario, Canada, which I really became enjoyed as a franchisee becoming an, an, an entrepreneur. And the, the college bar was a very entrepreneurial program too. Um, and I, I fell in love with being my own boss and managed to drop out of school and make my way to California for my 22nd birthday. Wow. So were you on your own? Was there guidance, mentors, or was it just Jason figuring it out? Oh, it's Jason figuring it out with, you know, advice from friends and some people that I worked with that I admired. And, um, but yeah, it wasn't a lot, it wasn't a lot of going back to dad and mom asking for advice. And did they check in on you? I am, was it, did you try to create a relationship, you know, once you get school looping back or were you just you like, know, that's I, th- I talked to my mom all the time. And, you know, I would talk to my mom every couple of days before she passed and even even after I left home. And dad and I had an okay relationship. Um, and, and unfortunately, when he passed a couple of years ago, he was going to be turning 80 and I was hoping to you know, take him away for his 80, 80th birthday and try to fix things. And that didn't necessarily happen. And that's just unfortunately how things go sometimes. Yeah, that is, uh, that's the case. The, 
Going to California sort of sounds like that young person's dream. In fact, I know another young person who I think is about to do the same thing. Mm. And was that just uh, the dreaminess of California? Um, you know what? It was a job offer with a visa that was easier to get 30 years ago, 30 plus years ago. And the idea I was going to drop out of school anyway, and it was heading into winter, so I must move to California and take that job offer. And I, and I wish I could tell you, like someone called me on a Monday and said, we got this all wired for you. Here's what you got to do. And I left. And that was it. And I was in California. For, I literally arrived on my 22nd birthday. Um, and yeah, I've been here ever since. So tell us, how did you get started? How much did you have? Much money, money in your pockets? Yeah, I had I had a whole bunch of money. I actually had uh, twenty two dollars because by the time I arrived in California, I had spent um, all my money getting down there. My credit cards were maxed. I missed a card payment, and I arrived on a Friday, my birthday, and I was with a couple of guys I was working with, and I successfully avoided all the bar tabs all weekend. And I met with my new boss and said, "Well." I'm here. And I got a couple of things. I need a three thousand dollar advance so I can pay my first and last month's rent and a car payment. And because I'm broke. And if you say no, I'm also homeless, which I factored into my equation when I drove down here. So that's where I'm at. So I literally arrived in, in California penniless, but I had a job and a and a, and a visa. So your your boss is like I, you really backed me into a hole. I have no, I, I have nothing that I can. I have to have you now. You have I, to. I happen to be very good at what I did, and um, he didn't have much of a choice, I guess. <laughs> so, so what was that job, Jason? That was back in the, uh, the working for Student Painters, which is a student painting business that used to that I ended up owning down the road. Uh, but it's an opportunity for college kids to paint houses in the summertime, learn how to run a business, and that's where I really cut my teeth. We've owned that for thirty years and expanded across California or across the country, I should say. Oh my goodness. So talk to me about the young Jason and what was it that was that, you know, if you think back, like what was it that helped you be successful? Um, I think successful is an interesting question, right? Because I mean, I, I don't necessarily call myself successful. I'm on a journey to be successful. I don't think there's an end to that point in life. And for me, it's always been really simple. I, I work harder than most people. Um, and I try harder. I'm not afraid to take risks. And I get out there and do things. And I learn, even though I've dropped out of every school I've ever gone to, I, I, you know, I've been a Vistage member, an EO member, a YPO member for 25 years. And I learn as much as I can about life and business, just not through classrooms. So I think, you know, it, it's my thirst for knowledge and my hard work that have kept me going. So I love that you bring this up because there are so many ways for people to get to their potential. And sadly, in America, there's a bit of the, if you don't go to a four-year college, you know what I mean? It's over, blah, 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 blah. And I really appreciate your being upfront about that. There's lots of ways to learn and grow. And I think increasingly it feels to me that people are really welcoming that and seeing that people, you know, a friend and I use this neurodivergent, there's people learn a lot of different ways and mm -hmm. their genius comes through in different ways. And um, that's fabulous. I'm thinking I have a really a young person who started his own painting company that's going crazy. So I think I'm going to have to connect you with him yeah, because sure. that would be really, really cool. Okay. 
I, I have my my two cents on that whole world is that you know when I went to college it cost like three thousand dollars or four thousand dollars right so it's like go drop out doesn't matter um all my kids went to college Ryan of course didn't get a chance to they all went for at least a year and then they all dropped out um and it's okay because they found their path in life and they're finding their path in life I think one of the worst things you can do is go and spend one hundred and fifty thousand dollars on a college end up with a whole bunch of debt to get a job that pays you what you you know you can make doing something else um there's it's just not necessary and there's so many ways to get a career and start a career if 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 you want to have a business for example we have an aging population who doesn't want to do anything for themselves and we've got a young population who doesn't know how to do anything for themselves so it's a great time to be in the home improvement business anything you have to do with home service because people don't want to do it or they don't know how to do it so if you started your own plumbing, your own electrical, your own painting, your own, you call it pest control business, whatever you want to start, because there's not a lot of people starting them, you will have a wonderful life and you'll have your own business. And you can take that as a small business. You can expand it across the country like we have, but there's a lot of room right there in one simple industry and you do not need to go spend $150,000 on college to go do that. Oh, here, here. That is so, I mean, I was just reading about that. People are figuring that out. And I think that that is such a great way. I'm a big you know, believer in controlling your own destiny. And it's great to learn other people's dimes and then to go off and really chart the course that you want to chart. Would you talk about growing some of your businesses? And, you know, I think you're a little, I don't know, maybe you're a little bit humble about that. I mean, just share with us how you, you know, how you got, uh, how you grew them. (laughs) Well, I mean, we grew them just by working hard and making a whole bunch of mistakes. I've had the same partners for 30 years. The student painting business grew to, you know, $40 $40 million uh, over time. And now it's scaled back down because college kids don't want to paint houses like they used to. Um, but, you know, it was a great experience for kids learning how to be an entrepreneur. And that's where we we learned how to be entrepreneurs. And then we have a company called Empire Works, which does reconstruction and painting across the U.S. for HOAs. And then we have a company called Perennial that does um, apartment turns in New York City and a, apartment, a company called Home Genius Exteriors, which does... Um, Oh, just roofing in the Midwest. So we employ about 1,500 people across the U.S. Um, yeah, we're doing really, really well. And we're, you know, in that small space, we have a fairly large company. And it's all been just working our, working really hard. And the thing that people miss, though, is like, so I can tell you that those are, are you know, four pretty successful businesses. But what people don't know is that I've failed at 20 other companies that I thought were all going to do really well that didn't. And it might be higher than 20 because I think it was 20 a couple of years ago. Um, but just because you start a company doesn't mean it's going to work. And just because you fail doesn't mean you can't start another one. Uh, it's the way the world works. You have to learn from falling down. And that's a big thing that people don't like anymore, right? If you take a look at a lot of the generations that are that we live with today is they don't want to fail. They don't think it's fair to fail. It's not. Um, it's not how it should be. Well, Failure is your best lesson, and I've had a lot of it. So uh, I appreciate this is great, great wisdom. Can you just take us through, not to bring back the struggle, but just share something that you started, and then how did you know how bad did it go before you aborted? I mean, seriously, I would love to hear a bit about the. Oh, I, check I mean, every single like in the thirty years we've done this, there's been, you know, I did a deal with Home Depot. 
which is one that really rings true to me. Like I, Home Depot was getting into the services business for painting. And I wanted to be right there and own that marketplace. So I'm flying back and forth to Atlanta to meet with all the, the key people. I'm this is back when Frank Blake used to run the company. So I'm like two layers below Frank Blake in their services division. I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to learn so much from all these people running $10 billion worth of services in the country. And I pushed really hard and we built it up to being, you know, half their stores in the U S and, and, but it never really grew. And we lost millions and millions and millions of dollars. And I pushed my partners into that. It was all me. And they're going, Jay, should we really do this? Well, five years in, we'd lost $6 million and we didn't have $6 million to lose. And we finally had to pull the plug and it's a combination of, you know, a big company saying, we're going to do this, we're going to do this and not doing it. So we built an infrastructure out there for 50 to a hundred million dollars and we were doing $15 million for the work and losing a million bucks a year. And we were a small company. We didn't have a lot of deep pockets. And so we finally had to close the doors and it ended terribly. And then I had the bank coming to me and saying, hey, guys, you, you, we're going to have to pull your line or we're going to limit how much money you can live on each year for the next few years. So that's the first time in my life I had someone say to me, yeah, I'm going to control your purse strings or I was going to take away your, your, your bank lines. Um, so I ended up owing back millions of dollars personally to, to the business and to, um, just because of how things all worked out. I built a big house thinking everything was going great, but, um, it didn't now. And then there was, and that was in 2008 and nine. And then the recession hit. So, we, so it got worse from there. Oh, 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 but you know what? We didn't give up. We just adapted and changed and got better and we're fine. And that's if you keep working and keep waking up every day and putting one foot in front of the other, then you can make it through. And maybe at some point you have to go bankrupt. I would have loved to have gone bankrupt, but I didn't have any options because if I did, I would probably lose all my businesses. I'd lose my house. I couldn't even give back my house because it was worth half what I paid for it or half what I built it for. But that is what it is. And I'm still here. In fact, people don't get this, but in my YPO and Vistage groups and all the guys I know, all the gals I know, every one of them has the same story. On the edge of bankruptcy, and then all of a sudden, you know, a couple of years later, they're up top of the world again. And then a couple of years later, we're back on the edge of bankruptcy. Um, you just hope that by the time you're 55 or 60, that those, those you know, dips in, are less, right? Because you don't want to be that way when you're 60, 65. Um, but they might happen again. I hope not. I really appreciate you normalizing these big ups and big downs. And, you know, as we talked earlier, I, I just think folks don't see that, you know, and I think, and I appreciate me pulling it out of you a little bit because there's so much for people to really appreciate in the one foot in front of the other. Um, it's not over till it's over and it, you know, you, you, you can make it happen where, where there is a will, there really is a way. I believe that so, so strongly. Yeah. Um, everybody has those stories though. The mine are not unique. Every, everybody who's an entrepreneur, everybody who's built a company, they all have the same stories. We all do. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing it. Cause I think that's the, that's the real opportunity for others to grow from your growth. Right. And, uh, and so I appreciate your being so open. Will you share, you know, when you are uh, in the entrepreneurial world and it can be 
wild swings and you have family, just talk about how you, you know, keep the family put together. Um, I know there's no, you know, magic pill for this, but I'm just wondering how you handled that part of it. I mean, the way I handle it, I'm not saying this is the best way to handle it. Um, I don't talk a lot about work at home. I don't, um, my wife doesn't come from an entrepreneurial background. She, her dad worked at Disneyland. Her mother was a nurse. So stressing her out with, we're going to go bankrupt or I'm worried, worried about this, that, the other thing doesn't help my home life. And there's nothing much she can do to change the world besides she's going to drive her crazy. And same thing with my kids. Like, what am I, what am I going to do coming home and telling my kids that this is really bad or this is really bad? Um, there's no need in that. So I, I viewed my home as my sanctuary where I wouldn't share that stuff. Now, looking back on my Ryan situation, we'll get to later. I probably shared, I could have shared a lot more and probably should have, but there's no need to, to, in my mind, to share all how terrible things are at work for you um, or tough things are because they're going to spin and they can't help you. And all it's going to do is drag you down when they want to ask you questions. And what are you going to do? What are you going to do? It's like, I don't know yet. Can't we just have dinner? <laughs> um, let's go watch a show, right? So what I did was try to focus on my kids. I travel a lot. I always have. When I was home, I tried to be with my kids, be with my wife, spend time with them and not worry about work. Um, I, you have to have a balance in your life. And they were always my balance. Yeah. Who did you turn to? Because at some point you have to like really let it rip. Um, and I know you've mentioned some of the groups. I'm just wondering how you found yeah. your support. Well, my partners, you know, great partners for all these years. And, you know, we're very close and we, and that's what we do with each other. And then my Vistage, my YPO, my EO group, I think my coaches, I mean, I'm a huge fan of coaches. I, I coach CEOs now through CEO Coaching International and you need those kind of things. You need that support. If you don't, if you don't surround yourself with the support you need, then you're not going to make it right. So you need someone who you can call and talk to who's in either in it with you, who's been through it before or can advise you um, and has, and ha who you respect because it's not an easy journey. It's never an easy journey. Were you always open, reaching out for help? You hear how a lot of senior people, that's a really hard thing to ask for help. Did you ever struggle with that? Or was that always just as natural for you to be like, well, dude, I don't got it. I need some help. I No, I've always been open to getting advice from people who I respect. But I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm very particular about who I go to advice for it because lots of people have opinions, but very few people have actually done it. So... I think uh, it's kind of this is kind of funny about the coaching world, right? So, someone posted on Facebook a buddy of mine saying that um, ChatGPT is going to change the entire business coaching world, and I'm like, and I respond. I never usually respond, but I just did to this one. I'm like, absolutely, because if all you've learned about how about being in business, you learn from reading books. ChatGPT can answer all those questions for everybody. So, the entire system needs a good flushing from people who have just read books and not done anything. So from my opinion, no offense to every coach who's read every book and who wants to tell people how to run their business or anybody who's just read books and wants to tell people how to do things. If you haven't done it, um, it's a whole different world when you've done it. So if you are an entrepreneur, be careful who you get your advice from. Make sure they've done what you've done or more than you've done before you start taking their advice. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And this is an ongoing chat. And again, I appreciate all the academics and studies and all that. It's fabulous. And there is just, you just have to do. <laughs> and so the doing part, if I get one more email, it's like, do this, be this. And I'm like, and you, excuse me. So I really appreciate that. Do you, uh, when you got into the coaching, will you share a bit about how you ended up taking that on? Cause it isn't like you didn't have a lot of other things already going on. Uh, Mark Moses, who owns CEO coaching International, was that same guy in the pool that I said, Hey, I need an extra draw or I can't work for you. Um, I've done three tours to do with Mark, um, student, the student painter world, which I ended up owning platinum capital where I was head of sales and a partner there. And then I was the first person he called to be a coach at CEO coaching. Um, when he started it. And so I've been there for 10 years. He essentially called me one day and said, Hey, I know you have a little bit of time and I don't have any, would you mind coaching this person for me? I'm like, sure. And then he kept calling every week with new people. And that was 10 years ago. Oh, I so, love it. I love it. I have someone that I'm going to send your way who I think would also be helpful to folks. So this is uh so thank you for sharing this because when I look you up, you know, you don't really get any of that. I really appreciate you being willing to go there and help us have a reality check because I think for folks who might be thinking or who are in the throes of creating, they can feel um, much better that there's way more failures than not. And that's just part of the journey. So yep. appreciate that. Um, can we take it, take us to, you know, the most defining moment and um, what's transpired since. Yeah. So I thought I had my whole life together in so many ways. In fact, five years ago, March, uh, March 19th, 20th, I always get the dates all confused. My wife and I are in Mexico celebrating her birthday. And um, I was literally having dinner talking about how wonderful life was and that, you know, everybody's going off and doing their thing. And Ryan was going to go into high school that year. And um, we're almost done raising kids. It'll be interesting. What do you want to do next? And I thought I had my whole life planned out. And then that night, we got a text message from Ryan at 11 o'clock saying goodbye. He had just turned 14, and he took his life that night. Um, it actually took five days for us to take him off life support, but we raced back as best we could from Mexico. And that was what changed my entire life forever. Because at that point, you realize that all the money in the world doesn't matter. Not that I have all the money in the world, but all the money in the world doesn't matter. Because you can't change certain things. So that's been the journey we've been on as a family since then. And I can, I'm can i proud to say that my wife and I are still together. We'll be 30 years this year. I think 85% of people who go through this do get divorced, and I understand why. It's very hard. Um. My kids are doing very well. They've adjusted as best they can. My son's getting married this year. My daughter's getting married. Derek's 26. Ashley's 23. And Kyle is, you know, enjoying life, being trying to be a YouTube star and all the stuff he does. So, and we're all very close. And that's all you can hope for at this point. So that's kind of where we are. What I did is after Ryan passed, I decided I wanted to make a difference. 
So I came home the day we took him off life support and I said, I'm going to start a foundation and I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I said, what do I, what would I want to do? What, what should I name the website? And I'm like, well, I, I would have liked Ryan to choose life, choose life over death. So I found choose which was available for $10,000. I'm like, I don't know why that's so expensive, but I don't care. I'm going to buy it. It wasn't until a few months later, someone said, that's the old anti-abortion site, Jay. I'm like, ah, shoot. So I kept it though, because if you look back in the history of that, that name, it was meant to be um, suicide awareness. And we ran with that for a bunch of years. I did a, a couple of TEDx talks. I did a goal cast and I did a movie called Tell My Story, which was based on my son and the fact that a couple of weeks after his death, I was going through his room on the phone, just pacing around. And I found a sticky note in the top drawer saying, here's my username and passwords and tell my story. So we did that movie and it came out. I'm <laughs> sorry. In 21, during COVID, we had big plans for it being in theaters across the U.S. And that didn't happen. But it's up on Amazon Prime and Apple, a bunch of streaming services. And it's really helped a lot of people, which is why I made the movie. Does that help? Yes, that helps. And, um, you know, my heart is heavy. And the the miracle of you and your wife uh, and the kids coming together, you know, really in celebration of Ryan is, is powerful. Cause I can only imagine how really hard that is, you know, for you and your wife to just deal with it. And then to somehow find the ways to support your other kids. Um, and was that something you folks kept within? Did you reach out for folks to help you through the grieving you know, I think everybody grieves differently, and they all do. Um, so we've all been on our own little journeys. I've been very public with mine. Uh, my wife has been very private with hers. I have my people. She has her people. Um, and we have each other. And the kids have all done their own stuff and adjusted their own way. You can't – I think the thing that people want to do is they want to – you want to try and force your way of grieving onto somebody else's because you're like, it worked for me. It must work for you. And it doesn't work that way. You have to really let people do their own thing. And that's what we did. So it worked. It's, I mean, it worked as best we could. Had you always had a very open um, channel with your other kids? Uh, and because I can imagine that if you had that already, this would be, I mean, it's horribly hard to go through, but at least doable um, versus, you know, sometimes. In youth, youth and parents don't really connect a lot. Um, well, I, I, um, yeah, I, um, I think I did right. So we, we were the family. I would take the kids on individual vacations every year, from the time they were three years old. Wow. Um, and we'd go somewhere. They get to pick, and we go somewhere cool. When we had money, we went somewhere nice. When we didn't have money, we went to like Barstow. Um, didn't really matter. It was just the fact they were with me for the weekend or three or four days. So I had a good relationship that way. Um, we were the family that, you know, we, if, if I was home, we were at the dinner table, there's no phones, no TV. 
um, we would just laugh and talk and, and tell stories. And the, and the best story would end up going up on, uh, on Facebook that night. And we make a joke about it and see what kind of likes it would get. And we ended up turning that into, um, a book called dinner conversations, which was just a, a collection of Facebook posts that we did as a family. Because a bunch of people say, oh, you should turn that into a book because it's kind of funny. So we just, I had Ryan actually do that. The year before he died, the summer before he died, his summer job was to take all the Facebook posts off of Facebook and put them in a document that we could turn into a movie or into a movie, into a book. And um, he did that all summer. And I should have, you know, paid him for the book as opposed to by the hour, but he stretched that thing into as long as he possibly could. That took, it took him all summer long to do something. It should have taken him a week. But uh, it was kind of funny. And that came out. So do I feel like I was connected to my kids? Sure, I really do. Um, now, I wasn't as vulnerable as I could have been. And that's where what I talked about earlier about how I didn't share a lot about work. My kids and my wife never knew that I failed at 20 businesses. My wife never knew how bad it was when I was at the worst about the banks and the house and everything else because I didn't want to share that. I had to solve the problem myself. So... I would say my kids saw me as somebody who, you know, owned businesses, was a CEO coach, was this and that. I'd done, I raced Ironmans. I was a black belt. I did all this stuff and, and everything was always good because I always had a smile on my face as far as they were concerned. And they didn't know all the stuff going in and around in my life because I didn't feel like I should share it with them. I don't think that was necessarily the best thing to do. Because when I look back on it now, when Ryan was going through his toughest times, he probably looked at that and went, well, my dad's life is fine, so there must be something wrong with me. And so we never talked about what was wrong with him. He hit it. So I, if I could look back, and I now I'm different, I'm much more vulnerable with my kids and my wife. Um, not to say you want to tell them you're going to go bankrupt, because I don't think that's going to be helpful to anybody. Um, or worried about it, but you know, a lot more I could have said, and I do say now, if that makes sense. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think this notion of vulnerability, which is an absolute must for trust, uh, is hardly a science. And to your point, you know, as if you're a CEO, you want to help, you want people to follow you, but you want them to think you're real. But if it really is bad, it isn't going to help people in the company to know it's really bad. So it's a real judgment call, you know, Jason, it's not, so don't beat yourself up. And I think particularly, you know, in our generation, that just wasn't as normative, right? That people would be so real and the idea of learning how to respond when people are so real is also an opportunity. You know, it kind of, it goes all ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and for, for folks who are struggling themselves or for folks with young people who are struggling, would you share things that, um, in hindsight, you wish you had noticed, or, you know, I'm, I'm just wondering and not to beat yourselves up about it, but no, for folks who are going through it, you know, that might be really helpful. You know, so thank you. I'm, I'm not beating myself up about it. I am accepting what's happened and where I am and realizing where I'm supposed to be in life and what I'm supposed to do to help. And if I'm not open and honest about what I think I could have done differently, then people aren't going to learn, right? Totally. So I would tell you that 
a couple of the key things that I, I wish I knew because I, I like a lot of people I've never been depressed. I've never been anxious. I mean, I get anxious if I'm going to miss my flight. That's like, that's not anxious. That's not anxiety. Right. Yeah. Um, I get sad. I don't get depressed to get sad for, you know, a couple hours or a day, but wake up in the morning, you're fine. That's sadness. That's not depression. And I never understood what depression really was. So the thing that I think I want people to understand is you're right. Your, your child likely God, God forbid, but your, your child will not die of suicide for the most part, right? There's five, six, 7,000 kids. The stats are not out this year have passed away from suicide. It's the second leading cause of death in the United States on kids 14 to 21 or 22, whatever the numbers become. But it's still in the grand scheme of how many kids are out there. Chances are your kids are going to be fine. But here's the stat that should scare you a little bit. 40 plus percent of kids have experienced some kind of major depression or anxiety issue in the last 12 months. In fact, the numbers are the same for adults. So even though you probably, there's a good chance you will never be touched by suicide and hope you're not, you are going to be touched by depression or anxiety. You're probably touched by it now. Because we are in the middle of the, the worst mental health crisis we've ever been in. So understanding what is going on with people if you've never experienced it is really important. And here's what I would explain to people who have never experienced it. I live in Southern California. It's a blue sky most days. If I was sitting looking out my office window with somebody who was depressed at that blue sky, they would potentially only see clouds. And there's nothing I can say to make those clouds go away. I can say, what are you talking about? There's no clouds in the sky. What are you doing? That's not going to help. And that's hard because people like me and you, Molly, we want to help. We want to solve the problem. That's what we do. We solve problems. But that's not how you solve this problem. The minute you start telling them their clouds don't exist and they're wrong, they will button up and not talk to you anymore. And that's the last thing you want. The only thing you can do is to ask them about their clouds, ask them to describe their clouds, talk about their clouds. Do they come and go? Are they always there? What do they make you feel like? How do they make you feel? Are there good clouds and bad clouds? Tell me. And then resist with every, every fiber of your being to not tell them the clouds are not real. They have to talk about them. If you try to stop them, you will stop them. They just won't talk to you. They'll still have the same feelings. And this is counter to what most of us want to do, right? Because we want to jump in and fix the problem. We want to say, yes, you broke up with your boyfriend, but there's lots of boys out there. You're only 15. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. When I was your age, blah, 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 right? Yeah. That makes the problem worse. Because if you have someone who's truly depressed over something like that, they don't see it that way. They see it as the end of their world. And we can look at this and go, you, you want to think that's the end of the world? Let me tell you what the problems I have going on. Well, that's not helpful. The more you can get them to talk and the less you can choose to try and fix them, the better they're going to be. And that's what people miss. And that's what I missed, right? I didn't know. So that's the number one thing I like to tell people is that don't try to fix someone who's depressed and anxious. Just let them talk. They What they need to know is that there's someone who loves them that they can talk with freely and they're not going to be judged. 
if you can imagine a pressure cooker, right? Pre- they are a pressure cooker. And that pressure is building and building and building inside. And the only way that pressure releases is by you turning that little knob and letting the steam come out. The steam is them talking. They feel better when that steam comes out. Let them talk. Let them say whatever they want. Just tell them you love them and tell them you're there for them. And then they'll come back more often and talk to you. And the more they talk about it, the better they feel, the better they get. If you think about what therapists do, they get you to talk about your feelings. They ask you questions and you talk more. You need to be, we all need to be our kids' therapists, our spouse's therapists, our friend's therapists. And you can say to me, Jay, you know what? I'm not qualified to be a therapist. I didn't go to school. I'm going to say, you don't have a choice because there's not enough therapists, doctors, psychologists, and psychiatrists out there to deal with all of us. There just isn't. And then when you get into the category of are they trained to deal with, and not even trained, do they want to deal with people who are suicidal? Do they want to deal with people who are depressed? A lot of therapists would much rather do marriage counseling because it's easy than actually deal with a depressed child or adult because they're just like the rest of it. They don't want to lose anybody. They don't want to say the wrong thing. So we don't have a choice. And my message to everybody is you have to own the mental health of your family, of your friends. You have to take that step. You have to be that person they can talk to. If that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. It sounds, you know, it sounds to me, your learning journey, you're so articulate. You um, can see what happened. You're owning it in such a big way. Wh- wh- how was it when it was really hard for you? I know that you've had a lot of time to process and get it out, Jay, you know, so I get that. But I I don't know. I, it seems to me there must have been moments where you were really like, it wasn't so clear to you. I mean, it's become clear over the years, right? I mean, look, when this first started, I was angry. In fact, I said, I'm going to end teen suicide by the year 2030 was my goal, the very first thing I said. <laughs> and I'm like, because I was angry, I feared that everybody in the space was doing it wrong. Here I am, a, I was arrogant. I fear I'm this business guy who's going to come in and change the world. Um, I soon realized there's a lot of really good people out there that are working really hard in the space. There's just not enough of them. And the problem's bigger than we can all tackle. But I had a plan. And Molly, I'm right. I know exactly how to end teen suicide. We first have to fix the schools. Then we have to fix the medical system. We have to fix the parents. We have to fix social media. And we fix the kids. And then we've solved teen suicide. So... Yeah, the plan is real, but we can't do all those things. It's not that simple. If we could fix all those things and make people realize and care about each other differently, then we would probably put a real, we could bring it back to where it was when I was a kid, where it wasn't that big of a deal. But the reality is that's not going to happen. The genie's out of the bottle. When I grew up, the phone rang and my dad answered it, and he decided if I was going to talk to somebody or not, and he stood next to me while I spoke on the phone. That doesn't happen anymore. My bullies stayed at school. Their bullies come home with them. I didn't know what was going on in the world. I had no idea. I didn't care when I was 14. I cared about going outside and playing and having fun and skipping school and not getting caught. 
um, these kids know about, you know, they're worried that in 10 years there won't be a planet because of global warming. They're worried about, you know, Russia putting off a nuclear bomb. They were seriously worried about dying from COVID. All real things that came like 13 or 14-year-old kids don't need to deal with, but they do today. Their little brains are no different than mine was at 13 or 14. They're just dealing with a lot more stuff. Jay, from a parenting standpoint, which is not to say you're giving advice to folks, but knowing what you know now, if you were to have younger kids than you have now, what might be some strategies that you would want to to try to keep to to help the kids stay um, as yous, not take on the weight of the world, but at the same time not be completely ignorant? Well, I will give parents advice because that's what I do now. Mm-hmm. Um, you can choose not to take my advice. That's just fine. But based on what I've learned and what I've seen from talking to a whole bunch of parents, a whole bunch of therapists and psychologists and doing two movies now, I will tell you that you need to own your kid's mental health and you need to have the conversations with your kids about everything. So great. You gave your kid a phone. Fantastic. So did I. What conversations are you having on a daily basis about what they're seeing and watching on their phone? Are they on social media? If they are, do you have access to that? Do you know what's going on? Are you talking to them about what they see on on Instagram, on Facebook? Are you letting them know that the stuff that people post up there is all BS? Nobody has a wonderful day every day. They just post like they do. Everybody's got their issues. Are you talking about what they're reading in the news? Do you do you have a conversation at the dinner about okay, what did you guys hear in the news today, and what and how does it make you feel? Are you really giving them a safe place to talk to you and share with you so they can tell you what's really going on in their lives? It's one thing to say you can never drink and you never do drugs, and, I, and I'll be really angry if you do that. But the reality is, so you did when you were 16, for the most of us. So what makes you think they're not going to? You want them to keep that from me? You want them to hide that from me so they can't have a conversation? It's a dangerous world out there. If you're going to tell your kids that they can never talk to you about drugs, they can never do drugs, well, I wouldn't want to do that right now with fentanyl as crazy as it is. I'd want my kids to talk about drugs with me. And if they screwed up and took some, I want them to feel safe in telling me if they screwed up. Um, so, Jay, let's pause here because this is the say it skillfully part. Help parents with when you're talking to your kids, when you've had these conversations, how do they go? How do you bring it up? What are some of the words you use? Because I think a lot of people could nod their heads. Yeah, yeah I want to. I want to be able to create that space. I don't know exactly what to say. So I will tell you my thoughts on how to do it. It doesn't mean there's lots of people who tell you better ways to do it, I'm sure. But for me, the one thing I think, one of the things I think I did grow do well with my kids is tell them, look at, you're going to screw up. I, I don't want you to drink before the age, you know, for me it was 18 because I grew up in Canada. But, I, but maybe you will, right? And when you're 18, you can drink with me at home, and I want you to understand how to drink. But the one thing that you cannot do no matter what is you cannot drink and drive. That's like that's one of those things that there's an absolute in my house, and drinking and driving was one of them. Hard drugs was another one. And if you do those things, and if you screw up, I need you to understand something. I will still love you, and there will be consequences. You need to call me. I will come get you. But I don't want you to do those things. 
So there's rules and there's consequences, but there's also the understanding that don't be afraid to call me if you, if you screwed up. I mean, there's a, I mean, I, I, I had a great, I still do with my kids. I knew when they were drinking, I knew when they were smoking pot, or at least I thought I did. Um, but it was never, I never worried about them drinking and driving. I never worried about them doing something harder than smoking pot. And I'm not the kind of guy who's going to go and say, you don't do that even though I did and all my friends did and all your friends are going to do it. I just want to have a relationship that they can talk to me. And I, you know, some people will disagree with me and that's fine. But I want to, if you could get your kids to know that they can talk to you about anything they need to talk to you about. And I'm not saying do not have rules for your kids. Please don't take it that way. You need to have rules. You need to have boundaries. They need to do their homework. They need to show up at places. They need to try things. They shouldn't just start a sport and quit it two days later. Those things all are real. But they need to know that you've got their back. So powerful and um, very skillfully said. I appreciate that, Jay, a lot. I want to do a shout out for our mutual friend, uh, Mark Golson, who uh, would have been with us, um, but but our schedules couldn't make it. And one of the things that I learned when I first was talking with you uh, and Mark about were some prompts that were really helpful for folks getting conversations going. And to your point, you know, none of us are the professionals. We're like, oh my gosh, you know, we don't want to make things worse. But to your point, you got to own it, right? Because no one else is going to dive in and be Superman for you. Um, So I'd love to just share these four prompts and then um, Jay, any thoughts that you have? So one is when you're feeling the most awful about yourself or your life, how awful does that feel? And then when you're feeling that, how alone do you feel with it? Take me to the last time you felt it. And when you're feeling that way or close to that way, I want you to do whatever it takes to get my undivided attention. I just want to thank Mark and you for those prompts and and just thoughts about those, what people would consider really hard conversations. Yeah, there's nothing easy about this. Um, our parents didn't have to do it. In a lot of ways, my it was my parents could ignore me growing up, and it was fine because there weren't the outside influences that there are today. Being a parent today is a lot harder and a lot more important than it was when my parents were around. And I think that that's the struggle that parents have right now. So my parents didn't do any of this stuff. They didn't have to talk to me. My, my dad told me that, you know, just pull up your, 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 your pants, get back to work. You're like, what are you worried about? Well, that doesn't work that way anymore. It's a lot more difficult. And you have to be on it and you have to care and you have to let your kids fail. And I'm not saying don't hold them accountable. That's not what I'm saying. So please don't take it that way. I'm saying they still need to, even as you're holding them accountable for life, they need to know that they're safe and that you love them and they can talk to you about anything. Yep. That is the essence of it. Um, 
as you reflect, my friend, what um, what have you learned the most about yourself these past five years? What did I learned about myself the last five years? Um, that's a really good question. I don't think anybody's asked me that. I... I gosh, <laughs> I guess I learned that um, I don't did not realize how strong I had to be to get through life. But you have to be. Yeah. Uh, we could uh, go on and on. So let me just bring it to a wrap. I know you mentioned the. Very, very proud that the family is uh, is flourishing now and intact and moving forward. Second to that, what would you say is your proudest accomplishment today? My proudest accomplishment. I think I'm very proud of not as much the businesses that we have, but all the relationships that I have in the businesses. And all the people I'm with me for years that we've stuck together and built something so that so many people have jobs and are able to feed their families and able to enjoy their lives and they're able to feel like they are um, making a difference. And of course, everything we've done at tellmystory.org, mental wellness media, and choose life. Um, even though there's a lot more to do and we're nowhere near where we want to be in any of those areas, I'm really proud of the people I work with. Yeah, and I know that that is mutual, my friend. How about... Um, Two top takeaways from our chat, one for young people who might be struggling with mental health and one for their loved ones who want to support them. Well, if you're struggling right now and you're listening to this, I will encourage you to find someone to talk to because talking is going to make you feel better. And it may not feel like it, but if you can just find someone who will listen to you, and if that person you call, you call the first person they try to judge you or try to fix you, call somebody else. Just there's someone out there who loves you enough just to listen. And even your parents who might try to fix you and they want to tell you why it's what you have to do differently, they're just scared. So don't give them a hard time if you can. Just understand they're scared. And maybe you can encourage them just to listen to you and love you. For parents, I know what it's like. You want to fix it. You're not going to fix it. They need to talk about it. That's how it gets fixed. Yeah. Jay, what was it like for you to share your journey today? You know what? I've done a lot of podcasts, a lot of radio interviews, and this was actually probably my most enjoyable. So I really thank you, Molly, for uh, the easy way. I don't usually talk that much about myself, and you made it easy. So thank you. Well, thank you, my friend. You have turned loss into something meaningful for countless people. And I want to thank you for persevering through pain, for modeling growth on all levels and helping me and all you touch to learn and to be better human beings. Uh, we want those struggling with mental health to know you are not alone. Um, so Jay, appreciate you for being part of the solution helping all of us to be safe, seen, and heard in our very true and best selves. And if there's any way I can be helpful for you, you know how to reach me. You take good care. Uh, you know, Molly, can I say one more thing? Please. We have a new album coming out in with uh, BMG Music. 
called uh, Songs for the Drive Home. It'll come out in May. You'll be able to find it on Spotify and all the your local, whatever music channels you listen to. And it's 10 songs designed for you to play in your car with your kids. And they're all fun songs, but they all have different stories about mental health. And they're designed for parents driving home with their kids to listen to these songs and spark conversations about your child, your children's mental health. And that comes out in May. Oh, spectacular. So along with the, all the websites, I'll include that as we post and we'll encourage folks to take advantage. Thank you for that. That is a genius way to use music um, and help us come closer. That's fabulous. We will, uh, we will talk to you very soon. Jay. You take good care. Thank you, Molly. Okay, folks, I will uh, share my thought for the week, courtesy of Jason. Have a relationship where your kid can talk to you about anything and know you have their back. And that is a wrap, folks. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Jason's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways. And know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is solvable. Communities are proving it. And it begins by understanding that we can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. The U.S. spends billions each year responding, but it's clear more resources alone aren't enough to solve this complex problem. Community Solutions is a nonprofit working alongside 105 U.S. communities, proving it is possible to make homelessness rare and brief, starting with veteran and chronic homelessness. These cities and counties are fundamentally changing their approach and have committed to get to zero homelessness using real-time, person-specific data to work and use their resources wisely. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org. See if your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name and need? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness can't be solved. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too.